Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Senator Dick Durbin says former President Donald Trump's U.S. Supreme Court appointees misled the panel when they said they'd rely on precedent and uphold the now overturned Roe v. Wade abortion case. And I'll talk with Crane's contributor David Manilow about local produce. And he'll share highlights from his conversation with Bob Benison, publisher of Local Food Forum. What is in season now? What If people are going on looking for the best produce vegetables, fruits, whatever, from the farms, what should they be looking for? we got cherries, we got strawberries. They're still prolific. They'll be a little bit uh, tapped out soon. Uh, red raspberries made their appearance this week. Um, I even found Saskatoon berries. They go by a variety of names, but they're little purple berries, and uh, they taste kind of like a combination between blueberries, raspberries, and apples. I mean, it's a crazy kind of thing. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, June 29th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. David Manilow is back for our weekly conversation about food and eating and the service industry and all those good things. And this week, you're here with highlights of a conversation. You recently talked with Bob Benison, who is the publisher and writer behind Local Food Forum. You guys covered a lot of ground in your conversation. Yeah, Bob's a great guy. And he is, you know, knowledgeable, passionate, and he's prolific. And he has a um, substack where he writes about local food and, you know, everything from you know, what's in season, farmers markets, how global climate change is affecting food. Really, really interesting. We talked about everything from berries to asparagus. To, to eggs. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, was t- I was talking to Bob and I said, you know, a, a friend of mine had a farm in Wisconsin. And the first time I went up there, we spent the night. And then in the morning, the, the um, hens had just laid some eggs, right? And so uh, he took the eggs, he went out, we got a basket, took them back into the kitchen, and we had eggs for breakfast. And I didn't know fresh eggs were that color and that tasty. I'd literally never had them like that before. They were this beautiful orange rather than this kind of pale yellow. And I was like, wow, so that's what a fresh egg tastes like. Eggs are a good example of, you know, uh, that we're so trained to crack an egg. It's got this pale yellow yolk. Again, it's healthy. It's good for you. But is it the best? No. When you crack one of those uh, local eggs because those chickens have been out foraging, you know, and eating bugs and eating grass and eating all the things that, you know, chickens are supposed to do in nature. And you crack the egg and you see that, that orange yolk and you think, oh, my God, there's something wrong with this egg. Right, right. <laughs> it's really, you know, the, the, the best, the best tasting stuff. Years ago, I interviewed a friend of mine named Ken Fredrickson. He runs Tenzig Wine. He's a real expert in the wine world. And I asked him where his favorite, you know, what's his favorite bottle of wine, favorite glass of wine? And he said, David your favorite glass of wine you'll ever have is sitting in a vineyard on a beautiful afternoon and drinking <laughs> what just was made there and, you know, and just enjoying life as you look out on, on the vineyard. And I can imagine it's kind of the same, you know, when you go to the farms or you go to the areas and you're just, you're waking up and you're eating whatever the bounty that they have. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that you bring up a, a winery because you know when uh, when you enjoy wine, you hear the term terroir a lot, which means of the land, and and so there's an appreciation for how the different soils and different climate and microclimates affect wine grapes. Well, it actually exists for all other plants too. For a long time, farms would uh, participating in farmers markets would just try and grow everything because they were sitting next to a stand at the farmer's market where they grew everything. Well, there are farms that are better at some things than at other things. And to the degree that they can specialize and say, okay, we may not have as much spinach as the next guy, but we have the best carrots in the world. And, you know, they'll, they'll let you sample it and, you know, see if they're up to that challenge. That's, uh, that's the impact of the um, ecosystem in which all this stuff grows. Yeah, he he made a really interesting point that that I thought was really worth highlighting about how climate change is is changing the growing cycles and and seasonality even. So there's kind of this, it's not as cut and dry of what is in season when, there's sort of some spillover and and a lot of stuff can be available at once, whereas we, we wouldn't have, we would have had to wait to the next season. Right, and he also said it's harder on the farmers. Yeah. Because they don't know from season to season, you know, what their schedule is going to be. Where we start getting into July, people start thinking about, you know, when is corn coming? I think it might be a little bit late because we had a really cool spring and the rain's been kind of on and off. There are actually parts of our region that are pretty hard hit by drought. A friend of mine who uh, runs Froggy Meadow Farm in Beloit, Wisconsin, who I visited with in, uh, at Green City this market, says bone dry up his way. Oh, really? Yeah. We're getting a little bit of rain over the weekend. It's most welcome, even though not exactly during the farmer's markets on Saturday. So, you know, the thing about global climate change is it's not always the same thing. It, you know, people think of it as, oh, okay, it's always 120 degrees or something. It's different every year, but that's what's hard for farmers because they don't know what to predict. You know, when there was some pretty regular rhythm to the seasons, they knew what to plant, they knew what to grow at different times of the year. Now it's just like, who knows? Last year, we had asparagus, which usually taps out by like the end of June. Late into July, we, we had sweet corn sitting next to pumpkins in October. It was nuts. That's really the, one of the biggest challenges of, um, you know, how... Uh, global climate change is affecting agriculture. So many agricultural aspects to climate change is not just drought. I mean, even the the I had a conversation with a wine expert once who was talking about the Rieslings that we see in Ithaca, New York right now are totally different than than 10 or 15 years ago. And she was likening them to older wines from Germany when the climate matched what Ithaca is now, which is so interesting. And she was kind of talking about what what the future of the Napa area might be. Yeah, yeah, everything's changed. I mean, uh, you know, global c- climate change is is a huge issue for anyone who grows anything, or you know, obviously even in, in water as well. I mean, it's just it's, temperature affects everything. What you talked with him about in terms of sourcing food, of where you get your food from, I, I thought that part was really interesting too. Yeah, so I said like, you know, if I want cherries, you know. Do I need to go to Michigan to get cherries and or do I just pop over to Mariano's or Whole Foods? And he's like, it's been sitting in warehouses for a while. It loses vitality. It loses freshness. It doesn't mean it's not edible. It doesn't mean it's not healthy. But 
local is better in terms of the taste, in terms of the nutrient density that remains in the plants, and in terms of shelf life. That's one of the things that people don't realize because when they, you know, the price differential between the farmer's market and the grocery store has been greatly shrunken over the last few months because of inflation. But people also don't realize that uh, because it's so fresh when you buy at the farmer's market, it's going to last longer in your refrigerator. So there's going to be less waste. You're going to be throwing less stuff out. You know, there's a lot of reasons, you know, to subscribe to local food. So, you know, sure, buy cherries at Whole Foods or Mariano's if that's your best option. But if you have the opportunity to uh, check it out at a farmer's market and get those berries or get those cherries, those vegetables uh, at the farmer's market, that's what we're doing. And so you, you asked about cherries, specifically cherries from Michigan. Yeah, we get them here. The Chicago food region or food shed, um, really is all four states of the Lake Michigan region and most of Wisconsin's growing area, most of Illinois, most of Indiana, and much of Michigan, including the western part of the state, which is really the agricultural part of the state. So like McClug Farm from uh, St. Joe's, uh, you know, which I can practically see, you know, across the lake here. Uh, Ellis Family Farms from um, uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan. All, all, all the, all the places that you know are within easy reach of Chicago, they all sell here. So I mean, it's not just food from Chicago; it's food from the entire region. And and more and more so, there's even the the urban farms here. You don't even necessarily have to do that drive. That's right. So the, we talked a little about the urban farms, and he said they they have really great farmers. That's what they do. They have people who are just steeped in uh, in uh, growing in these small lots, these small areas. Um, improving the soils, you know, a lot of our urban farm sites have required remediation hmm. because they might have been former industrial sites. Right. And so you have to like cl- uh, sequester the old soil and build soil on top of it uh, for um, uh, to, to grow in these areas. But take Urban Growers Collective, uh, for instance. Um, Eric Allen whose father, Will Allen, is like a legend in urban agriculture. She has become a legend in her own right. In fact, she won a James Beard Leadership Award a couple of weeks ago. She co-founded that with Laurel Sims, who's also a longtime urban farmer. They originally were with Growing Power Chicago, which was a, a satellite of Will Allen, uh, Erica's father's uh, uh, nonprofit. That went out of business a few years ago. They started Urban Growers Collective. They have a farm in south of Chicago, um, very near where the giant U.S. Steel Southworks was, right on the lake. They have a beautiful little farm in Grand Park that's called Art in the Park because instead of just growing in rows, they have everything in really cool designs. And there's six other little tiny little farms on, all on the south and west side. So, you know, they're not only great urban growers, but they also have a great social mission in terms of training young people from under-resourced communities and training um, uh, uh, new farmers, uh, uh, creating community gardens so people can grow their own. They, you know, to, for, food sovereignty is one solution to the term food deserts, enabling people to have the tools to uh, to do their own thing. So, so there aren't many, but there are all very good. There's another whole series of farms that are run by Windy City Harvest, which is a nonprofit uh, run uh, out of Chicago Botanic Gardens. Hmm. Uh, Star Farm Chicago and Back of the uh, Back of the Arts, another social mission-driven uh, farm operation. Food sovereignty. I love that phrase. 
Bob's a fascinating guy. Um, he was a, a political reporter in Washington, D.C. for 30 years. Um, and then he just he's always been a kind of a, a lover of of food. Uh, and then he just pivoted to kind of writing about not only food in general, but really local food and how to eat well. And he, he has a Substack, which is a local food forum, and you could subscribe to it. And it, like I said before, he's super prolific. He might come up three, four, five, six, seven times a week. And he's going to tell you about everything that's going on in the local food world. And that is really his world. He gets ex he gets very excited about asparagus and other things. So, um, you know, he's he's it's it's a it's a great read. And I think you can sense his passion in his uh, articles in his newsletter. That's such an interesting pivot to go from political journalism to food writing. I think he said he was paroled from dealing with politicians. <laughs> <laughs> so why not? So I think he's, uh, you know, follow your passion. Right. And I think as, as he told me a bunch of times, you know, if you're going to have a passion, you know, eating well is a pretty good passion. And I've, I've learned that in my life as well. So, uh, you know, why not? Yeah, that's that's very good advice indeed. All right. Well, thanks so much, David. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Abbott Labs is losing its lead in the U.S. baby formula market as the closure of a key manufacturing plant drags on. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Crane's Audio Studio presents Four Star Stories, The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, a four-part series reported by Albie Galoon. John Thomas, a real estate investor who worked undercover for the FBI, has been called a serial con man by federal prosecutors. He says he changed his ways after a trip to prison. But has he? This is a story about second and third chances. It's about a brash dealmaker who helped the feds convict a Chicago alderman and Tony Resco, a fundraiser for former Governor Rod Blagojevich. After leaving prison himself in 2017, Thomas built a new real estate business and a new life. But he's had plenty of legal troubles since then, including allegations that he committed more crimes. Some people just have the grift in them. They can't get it out of them. They were born with it. I mean, they were stealing penny candies when they were, you know, six years old. The Felonious Adventures series is produced by Crane's Audio Studio as part of Four Star Stories, Crane's ongoing effort to tell the story of Chicago's past, present, and future through the voices of the people who live and work here. Search Four Star Stories wherever you get your podcasts. The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, told in four chapters, beginning July 6th. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Senator Dick Durbin says justices appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court by former President Donald Trump were not honest when they suggested to the panel that they'd rely on precedent and uphold the now overturned Roe v. Wade abortion case. Senator Durbin said, quote, they misled the committee, agreeing with similar comments from colleagues and in answer to a question from Crane's political columnist Greg Hines as to whether the three justices appointed by former President Trump were candid during their confirmation hearings before the committee. Senator Durbin did not become chairman until last year, though he served on the panel and voted against seating the justices. In the interview, Durbin went on to criticize what he described as the politicization of the Supreme Court and said the decision raises questions about what he described as the integrity of the court. But he added that the votes aren't there to impeach any of the justices. 
Deerfield-based Walgreens Boots Alliance is scrapping the sale of the Boots drugstore chain in the UK, citing what was described as an unexpected and dramatic change in the global financial markets since launching the sale process in January. Walgreens had been in talks with a consortium between Reliance Industries and Apollo Global Management over the more than $6.1 billion sale of Britain's biggest pharmacy chain. Walgreens said in a statement on Tuesday that as a result of market instability, quote, no third party has been able to make an offer that adequately reflects the high potential value of Boots. The company added that the recent strong performance of Boots and its number seven beauty brand is also behind the decision to keep the business. The Reliance-led consortium had been the frontrunner to buy Boots, though the amount they offered was still short of the valuation Walgreens had been initially seeking. Their main competitor in the bidding was a consortium of Britain's billionaire Issa Brothers and TDR Capital, although the race between the two lost steam as financing markets became weighed down by concerns around inflation and the war in Ukraine. An Amtrak train traveling to Chicago from Los Angeles with 255 people aboard collided with a dump truck Monday afternoon in Missouri, killing at least three people when multiple cars ran off the tracks. Bloomberg reported that the collision resulted in the derailment of eight cars and two locomotives. The derailment follows an accident involving an Amtrak train that collided with a car in California on Sunday, also resulting in three deaths, according to multiple local reports. Another Amtrak train derailed in Montana last year. Abbott Labs is losing its lead in the U.S. baby formula market as the closure of a key manufacturing plant continues. For backstory, contamination concerns forced the North Chicago-based company to close its main formula plant in Sturgis, Michigan, five months ago, sparking nationwide shortages and creating opportunities for Abbott's competitors. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that since Abbott's formula has been off the market, longtime second placeholder Mead Johnson says its share of U.S. sales has jumped to 54 percent. Mead Johnson, which is owned by London consumer goods company Reckitt Benkiser Group, had just 20 percent of the market before the crisis, which was well behind Abbott's market-leading 50 percent. That according to the most recent figures available from market research firm IBIS World. And Davis noted that regaining lost ground will be a challenge for Abbott. The prolonged absence of its Similac brand allows Chicago-based Mead Johnson's Infamil and other rivals to forge deeper ties with customers, who now could associate Abbott's brand with shortages and quality issues. At the same time, the formula crisis has prompted lawmakers and regulators to rethink rules that helped Abbott amass such a large share of the formula market in the first place. Abbott did briefly reopen its Sturgis plant at the beginning of June before closing it down again less than two weeks later due to storm damage. It said it hopes to reopen the plant in July. But according to a recent numerator survey, 40% of consumers are likely to stay with the formula brand that they switched to during the shortage if it works for their child, suggesting Abbott could lose some customers for good. Also contributing to parents' reluctance to switch back to Abbott formula could be the brand damage that it suffered as the formula crisis intensified over the last several months. In congressional testimony in May, FDA Chief Dr. Robert Califf said his agency found, quote, egregiously unsanitary conditions at the plant in Sturgis. But as Davis also reported, as consumers try out competing formula brands, government officials are also taking a closer look at why the market became so concentrated that the closure of a single plant triggered a nationwide shortage. Last month, the Federal Trade Commission launched an investigation into the formula shortage to, quote, shed light on the factors that have led to concentration in the infant formula market and the fragility of the supply chains for these crucial products. 
Davis reported that Baby Formula generated $4.3 billion of Abbott's $43 billion in sales last year, according to SEC filings. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, David Manilow. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.